Okay. All right. You're reading this time. I am reading today. Hello, and welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian, going over the series to see what age like fine strawberry wine and what age like milk. I'm Kit. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Izzy. I use sincere pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall-related things at Abbey Archives on Twitter and Tumblr. Today, we're reading the first half of the second book of <coughs> Salamandastron, from chapters 15 to chapters 21, which means we read through chapter 20 and stopped at 21. It's going to get confusing. I need to find it. You should again. probably just start saying from yeah. chapter 15 to chapter 20, like, from, yeah. These are the chapters we read from blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. So anyway, read up to chapter 20. <laughs> Content warnings are death, illness, entrapment, a snake, wasps, siege warfare, and poisoning. Any others you want to add, Izzy? Torture? Torture. Yeah, I'd say torture's fair. Torture. And uh, the... Uh... A threat towards children. Threat towards children, also tribal stereotypes. The racism. Yeah, Brian comes out swinging on the tribal stereotypes in this one. Uh, we've got cannibals, everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had them last time. Yeah, cannibal cannibalism. mention. Yeah. Okay. All right. We good? We good. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. A pale dawn crests over Salamandastron. Earthstripe steps out, backed by ten hares, clad in armor and carrying a great sword on his back and a large spear in his hands. To which, I like, am just over the moon about Earthstripe's armor. <laughs> like, holy fucking shit. Badger armor is so cool. Would you like to read out the description? Yes, let me pick an open book. Okay. All right. Earthstripe the Strong stroll. Earthstripe the Strong strode boldly out onto the sands in front of his mountain with ten hairs at his back. The Badger Lord looked every inch what he was, a true warrior, clad in shining metal greaves and breastplate with a plumed and visored head garb fringed in fine chainmail. Across his back, a mighty double-hilted war sword was strapped, and resting easily in his right paw was his famed spear, which weighed more than a grown hair and was tipped by a long, double-edged blade with ornate iron cross trees a third of the way down its length. Like, what the fuck, my man? That to is which I made the note that I think he's using a boar spear here because boar spears had that cross tree there because when boars want to kill you, a boar won't care if you've already stabbed it. It'll just keep going down the spear until it can maul you to death. Yeah, so you need something to stop it uh-huh. so that it doesn't. Uh-huh. Uh, so, it's like, boar yeah. spear? Is this man using a boar? Well, is this badger using a boar spear? Okay. The just answer fun... is possibly. Yeah, because fun fact for those of y'all who don't know, pigs and boars are freaking scary. They will kill you and they will eat you. Um, <laughs> there's a reason that they had armor for dogs who would go boar hunting back in the medieval era. Even in the modern era, too. They wear, like, yep. Kevlar vests. 
because yep, um, uh, modern boars will also just absolutely murk you. Mm-hmm. Uh, boars are very, very big. Let me, let me, yeah. let me just, our, our first tangent of the day. So, <laughs> We're not even ten minutes in yet. We're not even, we just barely Whenever people in. think of pigs, if you've never seen a real pig or mm-hmm. worked with them or anything or seen that one fucking Tumblr post, most people think of micro pigs, which are not small creatures. They still can weigh up to like 200 pounds. They're uh-huh. huge. They're the size of a big dog. Like for context too, like it, like pigs being predators goes back so far to the point where like horses have an instinctual fear of pigs. Yeah. You cannot house horses and pigs together near each other because the horses will panic. Yeah. Pig pigs, the ones that we farm for meat are bigger than a full-grown man. Mm-hmm. Like, twice the size. Their head is the size of somebody's fucking torso. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, remember, it's, yeah. these are domesticated. Wild boars <laughs> are huge! All right. Tangent. The fucking <laughs> Princess Mononoke was not lying! <laughs> Tangent over. Um... He called Boris. Let's try that again. Earthstripe calls out a challenge. Who dares trespass upon the mountain? A white flag appears and Raptail pokes his head out, calling that they're willing to parlay. Earthstripe has no intent interest in parlay with vermin, only burying them, he counters. Um, and in the echo in the back of my head, I hear from NCIS, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Um, <laughs> My dad loved that show, okay? <laughs> no, yeah, I used to watch it all the time. Farago steps up then, cocky that he'll win a fight against the badger and only ten hairs. And he says as much to Earthstripe. For, For moment- like, <laughs> like, he says that, and then it's just this whole scene that happens is so fucking good. It is, the tension in the scene is great. And... Like, for a moment, Earthstripe is almost bewitched by the white weasel and the badger medallion around his neck. Is Chasing down way? voices in his mind he just can't seem to hear properly. He pulls up his visor, muttering the weasel's name, asking loudly where he's heard it before, and that the few behind him are but a fraction of those in the mountain. Farago makes a sh- Hey, you said that Farago is white, but I don't think he is. No, he is. They mention it several times, don't they? Because he's a white weasel with blue eyes. Like, that's part of his... No, it doesn't say that he's white in this bit. If it did earlier, then I missed it. No, like, I'm pretty sure that he's white. Because, like, it, like the white white fur with the blue eyes is a, it's a trait that goes hand in hand. It just says a tall, blue-eyed weasel. Huh. I wonder if that's because, like, I assumed that he was white because, like, most animals with blue eyes like that also have the white fur. It's just that's how I've always, you know, usually what I associate it with. Yeah, it just only talks about his eyes. It never talks about his uh, fur color. But in the friend and foe book that I have, he's a normal colored weasel. Like, he's not white. All right. My mistake. I just assumed that he was white. Nope. Um. <laughs> I mean, it would be cooler if he was, but he's not. He's not. That's okay. Well, you know what, though? Also, when you got that darker fur and those ice blue eyes, they stand out like crazy. Yes. Um, so, anyway. 
Farago makes a show of force then, having his vermin come spilling over the hills. It's like he raises one arm and some of his army like pops up and then he raises the other arm and the rest of his army pops up. And it's like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. And revealing he knows there's only 30 or so more hairs back in the mountain. Earthstripe will be hard-pressed to beat his numbers. Let him into the mountain and they can go talk. Earthstripe denies him, saying no vermin will ever enter Salamandastron. He sees the vermin slowly slipping towards him and hears... I can't see Izzy, your thing was blocking the view. (laughs) He sees the vermin slowly slipping towards him and hears his hairs readying their bows. Snarkily, Farago mocks Earthstripe for letting his son Klitsch and his friend Gotha into the mountain. Earthstripe lowers his spear to point at the weasel's midriff and warns him that his patience is worn thin. Leave. He offends him. Like, Farago takes a step back when that spear drops. Like, even he's like, okay, let's step back out of range here. Um, <laughs> like, the like this scene is really great. It's these two great, like, unstoppable object meets or meets unmovable force it's like which of these two is going to end up greater greed or honor it's just i really like the tension in this scene brian really comes out swinging in the middle of the books and this book is like another book where he really like he's won me back solidly into favor of this book (laughs) it's gotta start slow and soft so you know the stakes of what (laughs) what is in danger of being ruined and speaking of being ruined farago not willing to back down, says there's no chance the Badger would win a war, not against their numbers. With that, Earthstripe bells his war cry of Eulalia, and ten vermin are slain by arrows sent by the hares. And I, I had a moment where I was like, wait a second, where does this battle cry come from? And Kit googled it. Yeah, so I did a quick Google, and the first result you get is for one of two patron saints for Barcelona... She was a martyred woman um, who was killed during Diocletian's uh, persecution of Christians. And the word also has a Greek origin that we know of for certain. But when you scroll a little further down, you do see mention on the Redwall wiki that Brian chose the word because apparently it does have Celtic origins. So... It's probably, like, it's him pulling upon the Celtic words and, you know, rolling with it. I want to know what badger started it, though. Like, what badger in badger history started this war cry? How does it keep getting passed down? Where did it come from? Let me see the badger lore, Brian! (laughs) You want, like, the Cimmerillion equivalent for Redwall? (laughs) Yes! (laughs) I do, actually! (laughs) Give us a... that, you know, that's one thing that does make me sad. It's like, I would really love to see, like, creation myths for this world. Like, just Brian going a little deeper into the lore of this world that's not just Redwall. Like, give us a little more of just, like, that general lore of the world around them. Um, this is why we do so many games that have to do with, like, lore-based bullshit in Hope's Hearth. Because, like, we all want to know the lore. We want to know! <laughs> we like world building. Um... We do like world building. Uh, we're going to be doing more of that. <laughs> Farago yells out charge, sending his horde forward. The fight is on. Ten fresh hares send out arrows, and Earthstripe, carried away with battle lust, charges in. 
Three hairs die, and Oxide requests that Sapwood get Earthstripe into the mountain one way or another. They can't keep up this show. Sapwood goes out to do so, but is knocked out at Earthstripe's side by accident, like he's bonked in the head by a spear that a rat was trying to stab Earthstripe with. Yeah, he's just like, sir, we need to come back inside, you know, have some dinner. Come on. And Hmm. then he gets knocked the fuck out. Yeah, and he's just like, whoop. Um... It's enough to get Earthstripe to snap out of his battle rage, though, and he hauls the hair back towards the mountain. Klitsch appears before Earthstripe and takes a stab at him, literally, only managing to get his sword stuck in Earthstripe's arm. He takes the blade and snaps it with contempt, promising he and the youngster they would meet again. Like just He the- doesn't just snap it. No, this bitch steps on it. <laughs> Like, I love this, too. Like, here is, like, straight up, Earthstripe's not letting father or son get out of here alive. No. Uh, Once he bullies the rest of the way through, he passes off Sapwood and seals the entrance with a great boulder. Oxide- He, he, like, whacks this, like, oak wedge into the bottom of the boulder with a hammer. And, like, you know he's the only person who could have fucking done that. Uh Uh-huh. Oxide and Earthstripe trade little quips, and the chapter ends. Short, but very good chapter. Smash cut. <laughs> yeah. Hard cut into the Abbey. The this elders... is the next chapter, so like it's not exactly a hard cut. Yeah. No, we get we get still... a worse one later on. Yeah, it's still smash cut. We're back at the Abbey. Mm-hmm. In the Abbey, the elders try to figure out what to do about dry ditch fever. Abbas Vale asks Hollyberry if he knows anything of the disease. And he confesses that no. Sim- simple things he can fix, but not something like this. Not even the books he has offer a cure. He can help with the symptoms, but not a true cure. Okay, before we go forward, I just, when I was reading this, Holly Berry is their, he he runs the infirmary. He is essentially Mm -hmm. their healer, their doctor. And he can only fix simple things. Like, he even says, it's like, no, I can do, like, simple things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Here it is. Mother Abbess... My skills are simple and very limited. Tummy aches, headaches, scratches and wounds are what I'm used to. I have had a quick look through my medical books, and the opinion of most former infirmary keepers is that there is no sure cure for dry ditch fever. I can keep it under a certain amount of control with my own remedies, but alas, I cannot cure it. So I think it's less that he doesn't know how to cure illnesses, but like, there's a big difference between like the common cold and scarlet fever. Yeah, but it was still the way that he worded it. It was like, mm-hmm. so you don't know what you're doing. Exactly, yeah. It wasn't worded in a way that made me feel like I have a lot of confidence in Hollyberry. And that yeah. may just be a quirk of how Brian wrote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it seems like he's doing his best. But at the same time, I'm just like, you're he's... the person they chose to be the doctor? It might be a case of he was the best option they had. Like, he's really good with common cures for common things. It's just the more specialized stuff that he never had training for, it seems like. It's a good thing that so many people in the Abbey keep such good records. Uh I say, staring directly into the fucking camera like I'm on the office. (laughs) Fergal starts... It's so good that they keep such good, concise, and well-organized records that definitely don't cause problems later on down on the line in multiple books <laughs> multiple times anyway listen let's be honest if they did mention how to cure dry ditch fever it would be like a five stanza poem 
<laughs> you know, yeah, at least our riddle quest this time is like, it's not, not even... so much a riddle quest. Yeah. It's just, you need to find this fucking thing. They don't Go even find give me clues. It. Yeah, it's like, literally, no, anyway. it's just, it's just, we're getting to it. Cart before the horse. Um, Fergal starts singing and twittering about Flowers of Isator, an old wives' tale. Says he heard his grandmother speak of it. Flowers of Isator boiled in fresh spring water. But maybe she was just mad. Faith Spinney scolds him to show a little respect. Her grandmother had said much the same. The flowers lived in the North Mountains and could cure just about anything. But no Redwalla went north, for it is a harsh land. Bremen leaps up saying, he'll go. Thrug volunteers to go in his stead, being younger and dreadfully afraid of getting sick. He asks Fergal the name of the flower once more, and at an insult from the old vol, picks him up and gives him a bit of a shake. He's not as stupid as the vol thinks. Northern mountains are, of course, in the north. All he has to do is follow the northern road outside the abbey and look for such special magical flowers. The others all agree with applause and the questing light in his eyes books no argument. Like, like he, he, the, the logic is sound. He's like, yeah. no, come on. The Northern Mountains are in the north. I have to go north to the mountains. Yeah. Duh. And I'm sure with as special as these flowers are, I'll just be able, like, I'll know them when I see them. And I'm like, my oh, buddy, honey. my guy. Oh, oh, sweet. You sweet, sweet summer child. He's got Bless no your idea. fucking heart. You don't know what you're doing. Like, like the thought of this is like... You've got, it's like in my notes, I say he's not stupid, but he's not smart either. There's no planning. There's no direction. He's got no idea what these flowers look like. And it's a little frightening that they pin all their hopes on him. Like, not that they have much choice in the matter. And like, it's better to just like send him out to do something like, than just sit there and fret about getting sick. Yeah, like they're still, they're still going to be working to keep everybody as healthy as they can and alive. Mm Mm-hmm even without him and hope that it will just, you know, pass. It'll work itself through everybody's systems because like eventually it will probably, but you know, if they can get this thing back, like either Thrug will find it and come back with it or he won't. And they just keep doing what they're doing. Right. And he'll still feel like he did something useful or helped. So yeah, he at least tried. Yep. He leaves that night with a sack of food and a good trusty sling. Not long after he sets out, he hears a creature keeping pace with him. He readies his sling to give whoever it is a sound thrashing if they try anything funny. But just as he pauses to ready himself, he hears Dumble's frantic scream that a snake has gotten him. A serpink. It's a, it's a snurpink. <laughs> or a serpink. It's a it's serpink. Only, it's only a grass snake, but it could easily strangle Dumble. So Thrug knocks its lights out and gives Dumble a sound swap to the bottom to startle him out of the shock and get him breathing again. And I love your notes here, Izzy. <laughs> How did they lose a dibbon? How are these people so bad at childcare? How do you lose a whole baby? <laughs> and my, my response is like, honestly, with people getting sick left and right and their general blasé attitude towards babysitting, like, I'm not surprised at all. There's no badger mum. There's no badger mum. There's no badger mum to watch the children. Nope. Um, also, literally, Dumble calls it a serpink, and I, I make a cute. note here. I do like Dumble. He's a goofy baby. Yeah. And I do make a note here that, like, this is another one of those books that has pretty severe tone whiplashes 
which in this book, I don't think it's a bad thing. Like I make a longer note on it later. Um, but it can sometimes shake you out of the story. Like when you get to that really intense, like, oh, we've got the fight. And then, oh, Abby's in trouble. And all of a sudden, oh, here's a rather morbidly comedic moment with the snake and Dumble. Um, because a little bit later, Dumble is happily munching on a candied chestnut while Thrug ties the snake around a sapling. Which, congratulations, the snake is now dead because you have snapped its spine in several places and probably ruptured several internal organs. Thrug is an otter, a big, big one. Big, ugh. Otters eat snakes, so like... That's true, but, you know, the red wallers don't eat things that can talk back to them, so... Wild, considering that fish can definitely fucking talk. Well, one. One fish, and he's a, like a big eel critter. None of the pikes ever talk, so you think if anything else- That we're aware of! True. Um, He readies to take Dumble back to the abbey, but the divin bursts into tears and begs him to let him go with him to find the flower. He's terrified of the fever back at the abbey, and Thrug gives in. He plunks Dumble on the food sack and tells him- The whole fucking toddler. Right, and it's just like poor Abbasvale having a panic attack because everyone keeps leaving with no preparation and planning, including a literal toddler. Granted, the toddler is a little bit more understandable. Toddlers don't understand planning and it's just like, oh, Thrug is there. Thrug definitely will be able to help keep me safe. Thrug will have the food and things. It's fine. I just have to find him. And somehow Dumble did. I just had a flashback to that little Japanese show of, like, my first errand. Oh, yeah. This is Dumble's first errand. Um, He plunks Dumble on the food sack and tells him to go to sleep now. And the little imp tries his patience by talking for a while after claiming to be sleeping. Little goofy baby. Yep. Like, like it's off they went up the path, the big otter having his patience sorely tried by the infant dormouse. Good old Mr. Thrug. You're my best matey, aren't you? Oh, I. Now you get to sleep and stop Gavin. I go to sleep now. Good night, Mr. Thrug. Good night. See you in the morning. Aye. Now be quiet. I quiet now. Don't be quiet. Well, I should hope you are. Oh, I are. Be quiet. Do you hear me? Be quiet. Don't be quiet. You don't want to make it all the noise, Mr. Thrug. <laughs> now we have one of the hard cuts in the middle of a chapter. Where we go back to the dawn of the next day, where King Glagweb has been staring intently at Mara, 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 Mara. Well, more food is thrown down to the slaves. Pickle points this out, and Mara starts to heckle him. Ah, uh, Glagweb, that is. They throw food back and forth, as well as insults, until Mara smacks him soundly in the mouth with mud. And, like, I just, like read quick as I could past this part because I dislike everything to do with the toads. Um, It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's very bad. He swears he will wait no longer. They will die painfully and so there. Nordo loses his nerve trying to escape the pit. He's caught by a grass rope from the toads and a tug of war ensues. Those in the pit win and once more Glagweb leaves in a foul mood. He returns with archers ready to kill the captives. Just then, an acorn drops on Mara's head, and she sees a wren zipping away. She cheers out, Eulalia! 
The ferocity of the Guosom's attack catches the toads off guard as well as the rebellion of those in the pit. They're pushed back, slowly but surely. Logalog himself jumps into the fray, promising his son he's coming. Coming to the rescue. In the pit, Mara sees Glagweb for a second before he retreats. Pickle spots two dead toads, and more importantly, their tridents. She catches on right away and uses the tridents as climbing hooks to get out of the pit and chase after the Toad King. Which is like, hey, Pickle earned some points here. He was useful. Look, Pickle was useful. Good job, Pickle. (laughs) And Mara's fucking ferocious. Yes, like she's got the full-on badger rage going. She is a badger through and through. Because she nearly gets Glagweb too, almost strangling to death. Like she's holding him up by the throat, strangling him. Until the shrews stop her. They'll deal with him, their old enemy. All she has to do is watch. And my response is, let the main characters kill named villains, Brian. Let her sate her (laughs) bloodlust. But she can't kill. A special age. She can't kill. She's supposed to be the badger mum. As if Constance didn't kill. Right. Constance was absolutely ready to throw down. Um, Constance picked up a whole fucking table. Yeah. See. Mara's just at that special age the mm-hmm. girls get to when all they think about is murder <laughs> that's not me quoting that correctly but it, yeah, yeah. we know what it is um, Glagweb is thrown into his own pit along with a young pike it's eat or be eaten just as he treated logalog shrews and like okay one, this is kind of partially justified considering what we have heard Glagweb has done to other shrews and other creatures. At the same time, good lord, Brian, what reptile or amphibian hurt you in your childhood? God, this is morbid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, they don't fucking... They... It... Brian is just like, no, no, we don't kill them ourselves. We leave them to be utterly psychologically tortured and then, you know, murdered by something else, which is worse. Mm-hmm. It's like karmic retribution, but in the worst possible way. Yeah, like, it's just, just kill him, because then he won't possibly get out at any point. Right, because you know, like, if this was a main villain, like, if this was an actual main Named villain, not a... As if the Toads could ever be a main villain. Because... Right. Uh, yeah. Brian won't let that happen because, oh, you stinky reptiles. Um, if this was a named villain, he would absolutely come back either this book or in a next book, a la Chicken Hound, and wreak vengeance. But, you know, he's a Toad. He's not getting out of there. So what's going to happen is this poor Pike is going to eat the Toad and then starve to death. So you killed two creatures. Good job, Guosom. <laughs> Um, Like, Glagweb deserved to die. Clearly the way he's written and set up. But just do it quick and clean. Just get it over with, you know. Never. They make it to the stream and go with the shrews into its clean, clear running water in a dugout log boat. Or they have 15, they say, I believe it is. A logalog asks Mara where she's from. And she tells him and asks if he can take her home to the mountain. He says he can, but he wants her to come back to their home first. He has another plan for her. When Pickle asks what it is, he only gets a grim look. He 
subsides muttering about shrew food and how he's hungry enough to eat a toad. Pickle be quiet campaign 2022. <laughs> um, Listen, we, he has some some redeeming qualities about him. Every now and then, yes. I still think he's my least favorite hair character. I'm sorry, he still holds that rank. But he's tolerable now. <laughs> Dinjai? Oh yeah. Back to Dinjai, who is oh, yeah. Quick wandering, cut. <laughs> yeah, wandering through the woods. He has quickly recovered from the loss of Thura. Ryan, please, just a little little smidge of loyalty between the vermin. Um, Absolutely not. They're evil creatures. Don't you know evil creatures have no loyalty? Crying only a little bit. He convinces himself that his fellow stoat is no big loss, always fighting with him and bossing him about. Besides, we gotta, we gotta make this very, very specific. These are not his internal thoughts. He is talking out loud to himself. Mm-hmm. Literally just talks to himself now. Which, you know, partially for me, like, ah, this is a trauma response. Mm-hmm. You know? And some people actually think through their thoughts better if they say mm-hmm. them out loud. Mm-hmm. Like, if this were another book in a slightly different genre... This would be like a character working through a very traumatic experience with a chance at redemption at the end of it. But no. (laughs) No. No. Absolutely the fuck not. Nope. Because he's got this fancy new sword, which he promptly chops a branch down with and gets tangled in the branch. And And then cuts his foot paw. Yeah. Like a dingus. Which, ouch. Ouch, 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 ouch. Um, to be fair, he does dress it properly, like, with a dock leaf and mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. So, like, he's learned that much on how to take care of himself. And he says it must be Thura out there wishing bad luck on him. Thura's ghost no, just it's like... Martin. Yeah. Martin's like, let Martin. go. <laughs> Please stop using my sword like this. It is not a machete. <laughs> Machetes not don't a exist toy. in this world. Um, they might. Who knows? That's true. Um, Sam Kim and Arula almost lose Dinjai's trail until Sam Kim spots the blood and slashed up branch. The two stop for food to prep themselves for the last push to catch the stoat. Their meal is interrupted by wasps and Sam Kim accidentally destroys the wasps nest. In a panic, they run off. They wouldn't let the wasps just have some of the jam. If you had just stuck some off to the side on like a piece of bread, the Mm -hmm. wasps would have left you alone. (laughs) Now, to be fair to these two kids, they've probably never actually encountered more than, like, a singular wasp before. Um, So they probably didn't realize it was not just, like, a weird bee, you know? Because, like, they do have bees at Redwall. Like, we we never hear about, like, an apiary or them taking care of them. But they have to have bees with the amount of honey they use for their baking. I mean, they've talked about Um, having bees before. In Redwall, they talked about it. Okay, yeah. So, like, they've got bees. Like, the kids know bees, but they don't know wasps. So. I mean, they knew they were wasps. That's true. Um, Um, But, like, the thing is, is, like, they should have known, like, just whacking about like that. They may accidentally, like, cause more problems for themselves. And then they do. Yes, but then the deus ex hagina couldn't happen. I'm divorcing you! (laughs) This is the first deus ex we've had in a book and a half i had to do it okay divorce they are rescued by a burly hedgehog who's quick to catch the wasps and eat him like he's snapping them out of the air and using a net to capture them sam kim ignores his teasing and eating of the wasps demanding he do something we learn his name is sprigget 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 I was, I was pronouncing it Sprigat. Sprigat? Okay. 
He leaves the it two. It could just be Sprigget. Who knows? Eh, potato, potato. It's 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 English. Mario, Mario. It's, it's British English. We're probably getting it wrong anyway because we don't have the right accents. Um, he leads the two to the little lake, to a little lake, and gives them hollow reeds to breathe through. And meanwhile, he's pretty much impervious to the wasp stings because he's a hedgehog. Um, he's just eating. We get an insectivore. He literally the entire time yes. that we see him, he is just eating bugs, which is what hedgehogs are. Hedgehogs eat bugs. He's so fucking. I love him. He's just like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, wasp feast. Like I feel bad because, like, as much as I like to poke fun at Brian, just like introducing certain characters with no warning just to solve a problem he created, I usually end up liking them the most. Because they show that there are people who live in the forest, even if, like, you don't always see them. And so, this forest-dwelling hedgehog, while the kids are under the water, he happily keeps gobbling up wasps. Once the hive gives up and returns to their damaged nest, he hauls the pair out and suggests they roll in the mud to soothe their stings. They do, and it does help. And I love it when Brian, like, how he keeps including, like, these little, like, housewife healing. Like, these little, uh, not superstitions, but, you know, oh, well, if you're sick, you need to sweat a fever out. If you're stung, you put some mud on it. If you're, you know, if you've got a headache, use some willow bark. You know, stuff like that. Like, just local or regional medicinal knowledge that has worked so well that it's passed down. Like, I... I enjoy it when Brian does this. It's good is the thing. With that done, they tell Sprigget their tale, and he says he's seen the stoat. He'll point them in the right direction soon enough. But for now, they should sit and let the mud dry so they can peel it off and take the stings with them. And here's the thing. Wasps when don't... wasps sting you, they don't lose their stingers. Yeah, they don't. Uh, It could be that the mud is helping to, like, uh, mm-hmm. siphon the poison out. That's but... what I assume. Yeah, that's. I was like, you know what? And you know what? Back in the medieval era, they might not have known that. They just see that. Oh, this wound is big and swelled up. Swelled up. So, you know, just like and these... it helps. Yeah, it yeah. also helps prevent you from like itching it and making it more inflamed exactly. and worse and stuff. And while they dry in the sun, he carries on eating the wasps he caught in the net. Like I didn't put this on the notes, but there's literally a scene where like. His stomach buzzes for a second, then he slaps it to make it stop. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> I don't like that. Horrifying. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Back to Dinjai, he finds himself caught by Deathbrush and his tracker rats. He begs for mercy, but gets none. Even claiming the sword was a gift for Farago doesn't save him. He's slain. And Deathbrush takes the sword, agreeing that it would make a good gift for Farago. And they chop his whole fucking head off. Just one clean shwick. And all right, this is one of those moments where Brian's writing really makes me happy because in the more recent books, I love it how Brian will have like a bunch of different little plot points and then he will slowly weave them together. Like if the kids hadn't been stopped by the wasps, they would have caught up with De- with Dinjai, and then they would have encountered Deathbrush and his rats, actual trained fighters. These kids wouldn't have stood a chance. But now the kids have an adult with them who can give them advice and teach them. And like they've got more motive now because, oh, the sword is in 
even worse hands than before because Din Djarin was an idiot, but he wasn't, I wouldn't call him evil. He was uneducated and had a bad upbringing. Yeah, if they, if they had, if nothing bad had happened, I have no doubt that, like, Din Djarin and Thura being at Redwall, like, they would have been fine, eventually. Yeah. Like, they would have learned, they would have just, you know, grown, like, yeah. I don't want to say that people at Redwall are fat and lazy because, like, they're not <laughs> lazy, but, they're... you know, they, they are comfortable. They're safe. They don't have to worry about what's outside the walls. They they have the kindness that you can only gain when you live a safe and comfortable lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, is the best way I would want to describe it. Because, um, yeah. like, in another, like in one of the book series that I really enjoy, the author likes to make a point of, like, you can always tell if someone's been like well fed their whole life because they just have a healthy look about them that you can't get if you're constantly in and out of starvation. You know, like even yeah. if they're not fat, they still just have that look of someone who's never really experienced hunger, you know. Um, but food tangent aside again, I do like the way Brian is coordinating the groups in this book. So Jumping to Salamandastron, the battle is well on. Flame arrows have taken out any crops or vegetation grown in cracks and services. Cracks and... Cracks and crevices. (laughs) Flame arrows have taken out any crops or vegetation grown in cracks and crevices. Virago stands in plain view, but out of arrow range with Klitsch at his side. He's like, they're taunting them, basically. Absolutely. Like, you can't, yeah. you can see us, but you can't get us. You can't <laughs> get me. Um, neener, neener, neener. <laughs> basically. Oh, below. Okay. In the mountain, Ugh. Bart Thistledown and Starbob snipe vermin with arrows. Thistledown dearly wants to get Farago, but Starbob wisely advises him to ignore the weasel and get the ones he can reach. So he does. Until Earthstripe appears with his own mass of bow and arrows, he shoulders them aside, ready to get shooting. Like, he's... So, like, <laughs> so Starbob snipes somebody, and then Thistledown, like, I think, hits somebody, and they shoot their air fire arrow up in the air, and it, like, takes out the rat next to him. Mm-hmm. He gets a two-for-one. And then Earthstripe shows up with this big fuck-off bow and arrow that is a longbow, but badger-sized. Mm-hmm. And it's just, alright, let's see who we can kill, basically. It's, it's, it's very good. Like, he's just... Let's see. They both shifted from the position as Earthstripe stood at the opening. He strung a massive bow and placed a quiver of arrows within handy reach. Each one as long and thick as a short spear. The Badger Lord spat on his paws and rubbed them together. Right, let's open this party up properly. <laughs> He's having fun! <laughs> um, That's because Badgers, Badger Lords at Salamandistron live for fighting. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't have that position if you didn't like fighting. Exactly. Below, father and son resume their sniping at one another. With words, not arrows. Klitsch heckling and poking at Farago's plans and Farago shooting back with insults over his pathetic attack on Earthstripe Gaffa is heading back their way when one of Earthstripe's arrows takes him clean through the chest with enough force to knock his body into the weasels 
They scramble for cover, Farago laughing as he realizes that arrow was meant for him. And I put a little note, Farago channeling Clooney's luck here. Um, yeah. <laughs> Klitsch isn't... God, of, he, he, he makes this look, he curses, and the curse is Hell's Teeth and Dark Gates. And he's like grinning about this, but yeah. I need it. Religion? Right? Brian? Right? Religion? I mean, Dark Gates has been mentioned before, but like Hell's it Teeth. It has. And so like, has Hell. Oh. No, Hell's Teeth has also been mentioned. Yeah. But they have never been mentioned in the same sentence. Yeah. Meanwhile, my brain goes to Hell's Bells. Um, I mean, it's probably similar. I mean, we've used Hell's Teeth as a common, like. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't want to say common now, but it was one here. Yeah. And like the, the dark gates, the fire gates of hell, mm. shit like that. Like, mm. I want to know more about this weird religion. Yeah. Gimme. Right. Um, he all, he apologizes to Klitsch for Gotha's death. And Klitsch is like, eh, he wasn't really a friend. He was like a lackey at best. And a little party. You can tell that Klitsch is putting on a show. Yeah. About this. I'm just like, Klitsch is actually He's not, I wouldn't say he's sad here, but he is put out at least. Um, Cause like maybe he did consider Gaffa to be a friend. But he can't let his know? father know that. Yeah, you can't exactly. show weakness. Exactly. Uh, but also you put, take a shot for lack of loyalty and I'm like, adds it to the drinking game. Right. <laughs> Someday we'll uh, eventually make it drink official. water. <laughs> yeah. Or some other liquid that is not alcoholic. Because um, you will get drunk very fast and suffer from alcohol poisoning. Putting this aside, he continues pestering his dad for his plan to take the mountain. Some more adventurous vermin sneak closer to the mountain, only to be crushed under boulders sent down by Oxeye and two other hares. That afternoon, Farago calls Raptail to him and tells him to fetch several other vermin as well as a black fox called Faran the Poisoner. Raptail isn't keen on this. Ferran wasn't even a proper part of the horde. He just followed it, coming and going as he pleased. Raptail approaches Ferran as openly as possible, going so far as to wade into the ocean when he sees Ferran is looking out over the waves. I like Ferran because the way that he's described as being like an all black fox. Yes. I'm like, oh, he's like that black weasel from Clooney's army. Yeah. You know, the, the assassin. Yeah. He's a, he's a I man. wonder if Farago is related to that assassin. I mean, it's highly possible. It would be a fun little connection. Um, since we never get a description of, like, the female vermin, so God knows. Um, yeah, who fucking knows? Female, female vermin Brian. don't exist. Female vermin don't exist. Vermin just, like, spawn with bad names. From... And they're like the the way that people thought, like, flies and maggots used to spontaneously yes. appear. Yes. <laughs> Um, for those of you who don't know, in medieval times, they literally just thought that maggots would spawn from dead They thought creatures. this into the Renaissance! Yeah! Um, I don't... I mean, did they know about metamorphosis back then? They knew about butterflies, didn't they? Uh, <laughs> no, we're not getting into this tangent. Um, <laughs> he asks politely if Ferran will come to speak to Farago. The fox only stares long and hard. Apparently, With his none like, pale amber eyes. With... Stories of how his stare could kill. We learn Farago's plan. He asks for four chosen beasts. You skipped a whole bit. I did. Thank you. Sorry. Um, Raptail stutters out the request once more and Farron nods in agreement. Raptail thanks him. 
then Hyde tells it back to the Horde. Bronn takes up his supplies and falls behind at his own pace. An adder skin belt with bags made out of, uh, what did it say? Bat wing? Bat, well, bat. It just says like bat skin or bat fur. Bat. Basically, I put bat leather, bat skin pouches with a sad frowny May face. the bat's memories be a blessing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we finally get to see bats again as bats. Um, we learn Farago's plan. He asks his four chosen beasts and Klitsch, how long do they think the badger and hares could stay in the mountain? An old former sea rat estimates that with as big as the mountain is, they could stay in it for seasons with food and water hoarded inside. But that won't be a problem. Ferran arrives and Farago asks him to slip inside under the distraction of a night attack. While inside... Oh, so... oh go ahead. So actually... The old sea rat doesn't say about the food in the water. Farago asks, like, what else is it that will help them stay in there? And Klitsch is like, food and water. Mm -hmm. And he's like, ah, you might actually turn out to be just as clever as me someday. (laughs) Like, teasing his son. And then it's just like, all right, Ferran, poison everything. Yep. Because he wants him to poison all the food and water he can. Let's see. Ferran silently asks for payment and Farago comes up to him and whispers in his ear, half the badger treasure is his if they succeed. The fox nods in agreement and walks away on silent pause. With that done, Farago lays out the plans for the night attack. And I like Ferran a lot. I like how Brian writes him and I really wish he could be like a villain of his own book. Yeah, but he doesn't have the charisma modifier to do it, nor does he talk. And a villain has to monologue, don't you know? (laughs) I don't know, man. I find, like, a silent villain just as terrifying as one who likes to talk too much. Well, yeah, but for a children's book? Yeah, yeah, kids would need, like... The the villain has to have his monologue. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. He starts monologuing! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, villainous listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. 
This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.